I've been thinking a little bit this week about words of reassurance. Have you ever been in one of those situations where someone has said something to you that that was meant to be reassuring, but actually what happened was the, the very opposite? A classic one is when someone says, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? And immediately your mind goes to all of the worst case scenarios and you end up in a total panic. Or, or there's that thing where someone kind of tries to reassure you about something so many times that you end up thinking, well, is there something to worry about? Why did I keep on going on about it? Or, or when someone starts something, they're going to say to you with the phrase, now you don't need to worry. <laughs> you immediately think, okay, I need to worry now. Or, or then there's those kind of other phrases that have been so overused that we mistrust them as soon as we hear them. Everything is going to be okay, is one of them. Or, or you can trust me that. Or, or here's a classic one. Believe in me. We've heard too many politicians say that, haven't we? Believe in me. This, this country can have a better future under my leadership. Believe in me and change will happen. When someone says, believe in me, our kind of cynical sirens go off and we think, here comes another chancer, another kind of puffed up claim that will come to nothing. We think, I'll give it six months and they'll, they'll find some sort of technicality to, to not come through with what they're promising. That's what we think when we hear someone say, believe in me. But here's the problem. Just look what Jesus says in verse one of our section today. Let me read it. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Believe in me. That's what Jesus says. And it's almost a reflex for us to, to hear those words and be cynical. We're trained by years of, of disappointment at overhyped promises. And we've, we've, we're trained by uh, years of seeing the failures and the shortcomings of those who we were meant to believe in, that, that we now just hold something back when entrusting ourselves to others. Now, it is, of course, right that we don't just naively follow and trust people when there are important issues at stake. And this is especially important on questions of religion, of, of who God is and of how we relate to him. Questions of religion are the deepest questions that humanity has explored. And we've been exploring them for all of history. Is there a God? Who is he? How can we know him and live forever? And into these questions, Jesus says, believe in me. And just look at what he's asking us to believe him to do. Look at his outrageously bold claim in verse six. It says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Now, is this a, a, just another case of overblown hype that is just going to let us down? Well, let's have a, a little look at the context of what's going on here to, to figure out why Jesus is making this claim about himself. In John 14, we find ourselves with Jesus in a room with his disciples enjoying an evening meal. But it's not just any meal. 
This is the last supper. In just a few hours time, they'll leave the room to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will be arrested, put on trial and crucified. Now, so far on this momentous evening, um, what we've seen is we've seen Jesus wash the disciples' feet. It's an incredible act of, of humility and, and of servant-heartedness. It, it showed just what kind of person Jesus is. So there's been that beautiful moment this evening so far. But as well as that, tensions are high at this meal. You see, after washing their feet, in the middle of the meal, Jesus made a crushing prediction that one of them seated there, one of these followers of him who've been with him for the last few years, is going to betray him. And in a moment of, of high drama, Jesus reveals who would be his betrayer by passing Judas a piece of bread. And then Judas left the room. And then, and then tensions le tension levels were, were raised further as Jesus has a really kind of troubling exchange with Peter. He starts by saying to Peter's astonishment that he was going to disown Jesus three times that very night. Now, before Jesus called Peter, Peter was a guy who fished for a living. His life had changed dramatically after that call for Jesus to follow him. But now, this is what else Jesus says at this meeting. Now, after leaving everything to follow Jesus, Jesus is telling Peter here at this last supper that he's going to go back to heaven, that he's going to leave his disciples. And what's more, he's told them that they can't go with him. Anxiety filled their hearts. These disciples of Jesus were all young men. Though their culture was different to ours, these men were people like you and me. I can imagine questions like, Jesus, why are you leaving us here in this, in this confusing, in this crazy world? Or, I thought I was supposed to follow you. Now you're leaving us and you're saying we can't follow you? They must have felt abandoned. Anxiety gripped their hearts. What would they do now? And it's into this context that Jesus now speaks these words in chapter 14. Jesus has washed their feet. Judas has left to betray Jesus. Jesus has predicted that Peter will disown him. And now he's told them that he's leaving them and that they can't follow him. Tension and anxiety levels are high. And so Jesus speaks into this to these young men and he speaks with tenderness and with great care for them. You see, Jesus knows their hearts and, and he knows our hearts too. He knows that our hearts can get incredibly confused and fearful. And, and when we get like that, just like he was with them, Jesus is tender with us too. He's gentle with us now, just like he was then. First, he reassures them, first one. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. What peace-giving words to come from the mouth of Jesus. Maybe they're words that you need to hear this evening. Do not let your heart be troubled. 
That's what he says. And then he offers hope to them. He speaks to them of the fact that he, he is going away. But, but though he's going away, the reason he's going is to make things ready to welcome them. And then he's going to come back for them. Look with me from verse two. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. But the disciples are still confused at this point. Remember, this is the one. Jesus is the one who they have given up everything to follow. And now he's talking about leaving them for an indefinite amount of time. And in verse four, Jesus said, you know the place to where I am going. And then Thomas responds, and I really get this response from Thomas. Thomas responds, verse five, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? They want him to spell it out because the stakes are too high for them. And so into this confusion, into this tension and anxiety, Jesus speaks this incredibly precious promise. Verse six. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm going to the Father. That's what Jesus says to Thomas. And you can come to the Father too through me. You don't know the way? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That's what Jesus said. In this short, short little phrase in verse six, Jesus answers the deepest questions that humanity has explored in all of history. Is there a God? Who is he? How can we know him and live forever? Jesus boldly claims that he is the only true way to know and be with God. We, we don't need to go on living with confused and, and troubled hearts anymore because Jesus has given the answer to the biggest question that there is. And he goes on in this chapter to, to offer more words of, of comfort and reassurance to the disciples. He tells them that, that while he's gone, he will send the Holy Spirit. He won't leave them alone. The Holy Spirit will come and be in their hearts. He'll be their advocate. He, he'll give them a profound and a deep sense of assurance that they are known and loved by God, even while they can't see him. <coughs> um, <coughs> it's, there's some beautiful words in the rest of this chapter. And we're not going to read them now. I'd urge you um, later on this evening or, or through the week to read the rest of this chapter and hear the words that Jesus shares. But for now, let's just go back to that claim that Jesus makes of himself. I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you're a Christian here today, no doubt those words will be precious to you. You can know God. You can have the life that he offers because of Jesus, through Jesus, in him. If we've believed in him as verse one, as he called us to in verse one, if we've trusted the claim that he makes about himself, then we've come to the Father already. And 
one day we'll be with him in the new creation, all because of his free grace in Jesus that we receive through faith, through believing in him. These are um, precious words to us if we are a Christian today. But we just need to pause here for a moment. Because if you're a Christian, these words are precious. But here's how many people hear those words. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And many think, how arrogant is that? How can he make such an exclusive claim? Is he really saying that the only way that people can know God, the only way that people can have eternal life is through him? That's so arrogant. It's so exclusive. It's so intolerant. Now, that might be how you personally think about this claim. Or if not, it's almost certainly something that you'll hear people say. And let's be clear here. That is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is claiming that it's only by believing in him, only trusting him, only only following him can we know God. Every other way, every other religion, every other faith system has got it wrong. Jesus is absolutely making an exclusive claim here. We must be clear on that. And if you think it's just kind of a slip of the tongue, a kind of a mistake, he didn't quite mean that. Now just hear um, these other verses in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says this about Jesus. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And then uh, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote this in a letter to Timothy, who was a church leader. He said, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. I have friends who are Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, Buddhist. They are good people. They are sincere in their faith. They are committed to following their religion. And there are billions more like them around the world. But if what Jesus is saying is true, they may be sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. Jesus claims that no one, no one comes to the Father except through him. Now, Hold on, you might say. We, we can't just dismiss other religions like this. Maybe, maybe Jesus does have some good to offer, some truth, but so do all the other religions, you might say. Surely there's kind of one God and all the different religions are, are seeing different aspects of God. But in the end, they're all the same, aren't they? Because it's all the same God. People just are looking from different directions. That's what some people might respond to this by saying. And to help illustrate this argument, for hundreds of years, people have used a kind of illustration about, about six blind men and an elephant. And in the 1800s, a man named John Godfrey Sachs wrote a poem to, to tell the story of the six blind men and the elephant. Let me, let me read this poem now. It's not often I read a poem um, in a sermon, but, but let, let me read it to you now. It says this. It was six men of Indistan to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. 
the first approach to the elephant and happening to fall against his broad and, and sturdy side at once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, ho, what have we here? So very round and, and smooth and sharp to meet his mighty clear. The wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approach to the animal and happening to take the, the squirming trunk within its hand, thus boldly up and spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, E'en the blindest man can, can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact, who can? This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth, no sooner had begun about the beast to grow than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his score, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indistan disputed long and loud, loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong. Though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So oft in theologic wars, the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and pray about an elephant not one of them has seen. Now, do you see the point? Um, all of the blind men were encountering the very same elephant, but each of them experienced a different part of it. And so they drew different conclusions about what the elephant was like, but it was all the same elephant. The point is that that's being made there is they all had part of the truth, but none of them had the whole truth. And so it is, people argue, with religion. All of the religions grasp something of the truth about God, but all of them only see part of the picture. And the reality is something bigger than any of them can see. It's arrogant for any of them to claim that they have the whole picture. That's how the argument goes. And so no one, not even Jesus, can make an exclusive claim. But take a step back from that for a moment and think about what's being said here. Do you see the, the breathtaking claim that is being made by the person who's using this illustration? Here's what they're saying. They're saying Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, Moses and Muhammad are all like these blind men. But in fact, I can see. These leaders could only see part of the truth, but I am the one who sees the full picture. And now who's being arrogant? It is just as arrogant to say that Buddha, Muhammad and Jesus were all wrong in their exclusive claims, as it is to say that Jesus is the only way. You see, the issue here isn't actually one about who is arrogant or who is being exclusive, because they're all making exclusive claims. The important question is actually, what is true? What is real? What we need to figure out is whether the claim that Jesus makes to be able to bring us to God is actually true. And so when we consider Jesus's claim that no one comes to the Father except through him, 
there's a few options for what's going on there. Option one is that he's mad. Jesus is deluded. His claims can't be trusted. They're simply the product of a mind that is unwell. He's sincere, yes, maybe, but he's wrong. But read the Gospels for yourself. I'd urge you, if you think that's what's going on, read the Gospels for yourself. And I think you'll see that this is not someone who is mentally unstable. That's option one for Jesus's claim. We say he's mad. Option two, we say that he's bad. He's out to deceive people. He knows he's making a false claim and he has sinister motivations in doing so. He's deliberately trying to mislead people because he's on some sort of ego trip or something. But once again, read the gospel and you'll encounter a gentle, servant-hearted person who fights for the underdog, who, who deliberately avoids the crowds. Keep reading on in this chapter and, and the chapters that follow and you'll see that Jesus is actually someone who's willing to die for his followers. That doesn't seem like someone out on an ego trip. That doesn't seem like a sinister character purposefully misleading people. So, mad, bad, or God. That's option three. Maybe it's true. Perhaps Jesus made these radical statements about himself because they're true because it's real. Let's just revisit for a moment that, that story of the six blind men who, who go to the zoo. But let's this time hear how the Bible tells it. Six blind men go to the zoo, all searching for an elephant. One confidently strides up to the camel enclosure, ignoring the braille signs that are directing him towards the elephant enclosure. He declares he's found the answer. He, he does some investigation and he concludes that elephants are hairy, have humps on their back and have a tendency to spit. Another finds the elephant enclosure, but he doesn't bother going in. He, he too declares that he's found the elephant, but he becomes obsessed with, with its buildings, its enclosure, its trappings. Another blind man goes up to the, the meerkat, one to the flamingo and so on. And then finally, the sixth man comes in and he starts wandering around. A friendly, zookeeper, a friendly zookeeper comes up to him and tells him that he knows the way to the elephant enclosure. And an intrigue awakens within this man. <coughs> Something within the blind man tells him that this zookeeper can be trusted on this. As he wanders up to the enclosure, this desire that he has to know the truth about elephants begins to grow. And he asks out loud, I wonder what an elephant is really like. To his amazement, he hears a voice saying, if you really want to know, let me show you. The man's eyes are opened and there before him is the elephant. It was the elephant himself who spoke to him. He, he clings to the elephant. He spends his time getting to know him. And as he does it, he, he begins to see the world that he lives in afresh from the perspective of the elephant. Now, I've stretched the metaphor a little bit there. But you get the idea. This is how the Bible sees the story. People get distracted by all sorts of things in a quest to, to know God. 
We ignore the signs that are around us, that are designed to, that God has put there to draw us to himself. And so we, we come to all sorts of conclusions about what he's like, but the situation isn't hopeless because into all of this, God <coughs> comes down to earth as Jesus. He opens blind eyes. He enables us to see the truth of who he is for ourselves. Seek and you will find, he says. We don't have to grope around in the dark for an unknowable God and speculate based on scanty evidence that we come across. God has spoken. He has given the answers to the, to the biggest questions that we face. God came to reveal himself to us and to show us the way to him. He did that in the person of Jesus. That's Jesus' claim. Look at with me at verse 7. If you really know me, Jesus says, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. If you've encountered Jesus, you've encountered God. How do we know God? How do we come to know him? The answer is through Jesus. So if you want to come to God, if you want to know him, if you want to experience life as it should be, Jesus says to you, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In verses 8 to 11, he tells Philip that if you really want to see this for yourself, then you need to encounter Jesus. Engage with his powerful words. See the incredible things he does in his life, his works. And as you do, you will come to know. So how do we do this in the 21st century? Let me tell you a great place to start. John, the writer of the gospel that we're looking at today, um, towards the end of his gospel, he says this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So. If you're here today and you are like that sixth blind man. You are on a, a genuine quest to see if God is real, to see what he's like, to see if it really is possible to have a relationship with God. Then a great place to start is by reading a gospel. Why not say to God when you come to read it? Say, God, as I read this, if you are real, please open my eyes to see the truth. I encourage you to do that if you're looking into who God is. Jesus ate this meal with the disciples and afterwards he he went out to the garden of Gethsemane with them in the garden he was betrayed by a kiss from Judas from there he went on to a, an unjust trial before being brutally humiliatingly tortured and then crucified he did that so that the claim made here in John chapter 14 can be true. 
Jesus knew that the way to, to know and to be in relationship with the God who is light and purity and goodness and, uh, and perfection, that the way to know him is blocked for humanity by our darkness, by our rebellion, by our selfishness. And so he did something about it. On the cross, Jesus took on himself the darkness of humanity. He paid for it by giving his own life. He broke that barrier between God and us as he, the kind and gentle one, the bread of life, the light of the world, took our darkness. He did it so that he could be the way to the Father for anyone who believes in him. He died so that we might live. And then just a couple of days later, he rose from the dead. And one day he will return and we will be with him in person, face to face. That's how this story goes. Jesus can bring us to God. And so here is the most important question you will ever answer for yourself. Will you let him? Will you believe in him? Will you let him bring you to the Father and give you life? He is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. Maybe you're here and for the first time you're seeing this to be true. But why not speak to Jesus now? He promises that he's listening. As as he speaks to your weary and troubled and confused and anxious heart, why not speak to him and say that you will believe in him, like he called the disciples to in verse one? As you see competing claims of people saying, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. Why not say to Jesus, I will believe in you. You have shown yourself to be trustworthy by dying for me. You have shown that you stick to your word by rising from the dead. I can trust you. I believe in you. I know that I can come to the Father because of you and what you've done for me. Why not say that to him for the first time? I know many, most of us here are Christians and we've already said these words to Jesus. And so the, the question I have for you and for me this evening is... Do you still believe them? As life crowds in, as the world and our minds and our bodies and everything within us and around us pull us to believe in everything but Jesus, as we find our hearts troubled and anxious, just like these young men at the Last Supper did, will we once again take the comfort that Jesus offers and believe in him? I am the way, Jesus says. Do you still trust that Jesus is the way? That the only exclusive way that we can come to God is through him? Or do you functionally exist as though more is needed than just Jesus? Do you, do you live under a burden of feeling that to approach God, you have to prove yourself? Your Bible reading, your prayer life needs to be regular and joyful or God's door is closed to you. Do you mistakenly believe that the sin that you struggle with means that God is disappointed in you? 
Do you look to him and see a frowning face because you're not up to the mark? Do you think that you need to get it sorted? Then you can kind of work on coming to God again. Perhaps you see other people in church really going for it, living in community or seeking to bless hearty people or pursuing opportunities to share Jesus. And you think that somehow they're on a different plane to you as a Christian, that they're in the room where it happens with God and you are on the outside. If any of that describes you, let me tell you this. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. No one, no one comes to the Father except through him. Our success of battling sin, our activity in the church, our personal Bible times, whatever it is, none of things make us even, none of these things make us even a tiny bit more able to approach God. Jesus is the way. And he is gentle and gracious and full of mercy. He, he puts his arm around you in your weakness and in your sin and in your inconsistency. And he says, come with me. I am. I've done it. all. Come to the father with me on my merits, not yours. Jesus says, I am the way. Believe him. How about the truth? Do you still trust that Jesus is the truth? Or have you bought into a load of other truths? Have you bought into the narrative that this world tells you that you are what you own, you are what you do, you are how you look? Or, or maybe you've bought into the so-called truths about Jesus that assault us constantly, that he's irrelevant, that he's outdated, that he's only interested in your so-called spiritual life, that you can ignore him the rest of life. Have you, have you believed the lies that he's demanding and cold? Jesus says, I am the truth. In Jesus, we see ourselves as we truly are. We see one who defines us as infinitely precious, not because of what we do or own or look like, but because the God of the universe, the God of the universe has declared us so. In Jesus, we see the truth about who God is, the God who comes close, who lives in our hearts, who, who cares about every single corner of our life. In, in Jesus, we see the truth that God is gentle and merciful, who loves to forgive and to bless and to extend grace to us and to lavish us with his goodness. I am the truth, Jesus says. Let the truth of who Jesus is redefine everything. Let him radically reshape how you see God, how you see yourself, how you see the world around you. Let his truth shout louder than the competing voices around you. And finally, to our troubled hearts, Jesus says, I am the life. But often we find ourselves convinced that life is found elsewhere, the next holiday, the next investment, the next level of our video game. We believe that to experience life, we need to have people's approval. We believe that life is found in sex or in the right relationship or, or through getting drunk and escaping it all. But Jesus speaks into this search for life with a reminder. I am the life, he says. 
in him, the bread of life, the one who gives the light of life, the resurrection and the life, <coughs> there is life, life to the full, as he says elsewhere. As the maker of life, he is the one who knows what it is to truly experience. He died to take our death and he rose to offer us true life in him. He offers us that now in part and fully in the life to come, in the new creation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Believe in me. That's what Jesus said.